Hello folks and welcome to the Comedy Corner here on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. My name is Graham Stevens and I really hope that I can bring a smile to your face. Why do only fools and old work Hello there, and welcome back. And welcome this week to the final part of the history of radio comedy. And please don't switch off at the end, as it's followed by an episode of the Frankie Howard Show. Ladies and gentlemen, we present a radio programme in English. From time to time, actors will be heard. The author has fled the country. The curious start of an odd experiment... The programme in English brings an echo of Gilly Potter, but you'll recognise the actors as belonging to a younger generation than that, a more worried generation too. 1954, a world overshadowed with doubts, fears, uncertainty. Of Indochina, the Suez, Cyprus, East and West German strike, the H-bomb explosion, and yet to come, the unbelievable power of the Cobalt Bomb. But our own governors are not unaware of these dangers. At this moment, the House of Commons are, are debating serious matters. Darling, they're, they're ruining St. Martin's. Uh, there are far too many darlings in Trafalgar Square. And we must, we must get rid of these disgusting creatures. We must. Well said. Well, was it a goon show or not? The goonologists are probably still debating the matter. The starlings had the goon cast, but the sometimes serious satirical tone had more to do with the real-life preoccupations of scriptwriter Spike Milligan, who couldn't bear to see effort expended over the extermination of supposedly pestilential bird life when all around the political world seemed to be falling apart. The show got the goons, not for the first time, into trouble, and later we'll hear a little of what caused offence. But meanwhile, another of the problems involved in it was its experimental form. Listeners had already grown used to laughter and giggling from the audience and the performers as the oral washing line on which the goon show was hung. But here, the background was as bare and audienceless as a radio play. In the early 50s, as a matter of fact, a general disgust with audience shows was in the air. In his popular show, Just Fancy, Eric Barker was one of the ones to voice it. Ladies and gentlemen, may we take this opportunity of welcoming you once more to this programme. You see no audience roar to persuade you that it's going to be really something, no orchestra fashioned largely from brass to make further conversation on your part impracticable. We just depend on your goodwill to get our message across. Because goodwill can be a two-edged sword. Occasionally we hear the variety show that does not retain the goodwill with which it starts, so that the artist has to leap in and supply his own laughs. Ladies and gentlemen, the Tommy Comforth Show! <laughs> and here he is, the boy who can't go right, the guy England can do without, every woman's idea of what a man shouldn't be, the one and only Tommy Comforth! <laughs> yeah, hello, hello, boys and girls. Well, how are you? Everybody all right, eh? I'm so happy because I'm not mean, you know. Oh, no, I was watching my pipe cleaners last night. By the way, 
He's a very funny woman, the wife, you know. Writes poems as the wife. Yes, writes poems. Here's one. I love my hubby very much. He loves blancmange and jelly. <laughs> uh, but I never give him rhubarb because he suffers with his headaches. By the way, I... <laughs> it seems there was a widespread feeling that now the war was receding into memory, stand-up comedy was trying too hard. The Stephen Potter-Joyce Grenfell gang thought so too in their third programme expose, How to Broadcast. Our next guest in Fits and Starts will be introduced to you by our old friend Bill Swinston, if I can get him out of the bass drum. <laughs> Bill! Hey, Bill, come over here! Oh, me? I'm far from fit. Ah, you'll feel all right when I tell you who our next guest is. Now, picture the Eiffel Tower. Aye. Picture a gay little cafe on the corner. Aye, I feel better already. I'm feeling fit. Yeah, the essence of that lovely city of laughter is the chicest little Parisian of them all. Oh, la la, lead me to her, lead okay. me to Okay. Bill, this is Colette Mignon. Colette, this is Bill. Hello, Bill. Hello, Colette. Well? Qu'est-ce que ça veut dire, well? What does it mean, well, Bill? Well, it means, it means why couldn't I keep my big bush shut? Well, 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 it means you're a bit of all right, Colette, and perda okay. I think you are, well, too, Bill. Well, I'm far from fit. <laughs> Very funny. Oh, it gets worse. Well, I was walking along the street just now, and I saw a man I know. His name was Smithers Pomfret, and he was carrying a zither. Well, he was the third man I'd seen with a zither in a week. <laughs> oh, well, that goes better with film fans. He said, how about a quick cuppa? So, of course, I said, suits me to a tea. <laughs> oh, that's what it says in the script. No wonder the script writers are starving. <laughs> well, where was it? Oh, yes, I was having a cup of tea with a sailor. And that failed gagster was Mr. Roy Plumley in his satirical days. Imitators and impersonators were still plying their specialised trade, and as usual, they're harder to judge, since their victims and targets are only dimly remembered. But there's no doubt, judging by the response, that a young variety bandbox recruit called Peter Sellers was getting it right. This is David Southwood, and as usual, my seat is in the circle. But there's a little boy sitting next to me who keeps shouting. I say, Sonny, would you mind being quiet, please? Oh, I beg your pardon. I'm I'm Southwood, not Buffy. You may be Southwood, but you're still Can you play knock-knock? Yes, I can. All right. Knock-knock. Who's there? Cohen. Cohen? Cohen who? Cohen, cut your big gob. It must have dawned on Peter Sellers after that reception that these infantile characters were worth sticking with. At the time he recorded that, the goons were still an idea waiting to force its way into fulfilment. The material was already being stockpiled by Spike Milligan. I used to work behind a bar in Westminster and London, and the chap who owned the pub, Jimmy Graff, and he was writing at the time odd scripts for a chap called Derek Roy, who was big shakes in those days, and I used to tell one or two jokes, and then bit by bit he said, do you know any jokes? And I said, there's some more jokes, and then I'd run out of the jokes, and I th I, he said, well, you don't know any I said, no, I'd make some up, I suppose. So I started to make up jokes for Derek Roy through Jimmy Graff, and bit by bit I started writing scripts. And then I started to write way out things which were constantly cut from the scripts. And I kept these, all these things on one side, and nobody ever used them except when I met Peter Sellers. And then he laughed like mad at these jokes. I said, do you think they're funny? He said, yes. 
thought that was praise enough at the time, because he was quite a, quite a big name in radio when that happened. Milligan and Seacom had met in the army in Italy. Milligan and Sellers were trying out material privately, and the fourth active goon was Michael Benteen. We'd all known one another at the windmill, and um, we naturally gravitated. We got the same sense of humour, so we mm -hmm. we gravitated together. As we were called the Judia Crazy Gang. It shows you how long ago it was. <laughs> The goon voices came from all over. Eccles, largely from Walt Disney's Goofy, Blue Bottle from the kind of kiddiewink we've already heard, Gritpipe Thin from the standard George Sanders character, and so on. But their collective name? The origin of the goons was um, in the 30s. The Popeye cartoons had characters that were big and hairy. With They had rather thin biceps and very fat forearms, rather like, rather like Popeye, the same sort of drawing. And uh, they were called goons. They lived on a goon island, I think. And they talked in soundtrack. They had a sort of beep, 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 beep. And that was the goon. They were great big hairy twits. <laughs> then later during the war, when there were Allied prisoners of war in Germany, they referred to the German guards as the goons because they were great big hairy brainless twits. Finally accepted onto the airwaves in May 1951, over two years after they'd started pushing for a chance to appear together, they had to accept a billing as those crazy people. BBC senior management couldn't go along with this goon thing. In fact, at least one of them thought he was dealing with the go-on show. As far as we can tell from fragmentary glimpses of the first two series of goons, Benteen was at least as prolific a supplier of ideas as Milligan. He certainly played one of the dominant character parts as Osric Pureheart, a mad inventor. Here he is in one of those rare and hairy-sounding shreds of early goondom. goons of 1952, and at last they were officially allowed the name they wanted in June of that year. It was still a magazine programme rather than an interrupted narrative, so there was room for Harry Seacombe to give them the operatic works. Yes, a real pagliaccio with sobs and not a giggle or a raspberry to be heard. Seacombe was a busy man. He'd become one of the stream of young stars who rose simultaneously through the ranks of educating Archie. Mr. Harold Seacombe, your trustworthy travelling salesman. Bringing you your new electric chimney sweeper. No more black hands, no more black faces, no more soot, and in many cases, no more chimney. <laughs> When I finish cleaning your chimney, it will be so clean you'll be able to eat your breakfast in it. But, Harold, your mouth and your hands, they're black. My last client insisted I had breakfast in it. 
silly fool. He got on the roof and lowered me down a cup of coffee. Yeah, and then some bacon and eggs. Oh, no. <laughs> well, yes. all I can say is you're wearing a very small yellow berret. Yeah. <laughs> yellow berret? Yes, with bacon ear flaps. Oh. <laughs> the fool, the absolute fool. Agatha, do you remember I was taking you out to lunch? Yes, I'd read it. Good. Well, I'll kneel down. You get a knife and fork. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> No, no, Agatha, please, please, don't dash away like that. I, I didn't mean it. Say something nice to me, Agatha. Please don't stand there silent. <laughs> Say something. I, 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 I was ribbing you, Agatha. <laughs> please forgive me. Agatha, you, you can't leave me like this. Say something. Bacon bonds. <laughs> Seekham with Archie and Hattie Jakes, later Vitmar, and Max Bygraves, too. It may seem unlikely now, but Bygraves at the time was consorting with at least two goons, because he was also a star of Paradise Street. The common link between all three shows, Goons, Archie and Paradise Street, was the writer Eric Sykes, who worked on a similar wavelength to Milligan and his early partner, Larry Stevens. In this sequence from Paradise Street, you'll hear a perfectly recognisable by Graves, Hattie Jakes again, and a strangulated Milligan impersonating a policeman, with some very Milligan-esque lines. Maybe he collaborated on them. It's eleven o'clock. Mr. Fogburton should be in bed now. So should you. We must make no noise. Above all, I must dig silently. How can you dig silently? He's got a rubber shovel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how will you know when Mr. Fogburton's asleep? I'll find out. Yes? Good night, Mr. Fogburton. Sleep well. Good night. Even if he's asleep, won't he hear you digging from his bedroom window? I'm not going to dig from his bedroom window. (laughs) Your boots are making enough noise to waken the... Don't say it. In any case, I'm wearing soft shoes. Got your shovel? Yes. Well, do me a soft shoe shovel. (laughs) Mr. Frogburton's hardly likely to sleep while he's being interrupted at five-minute intervals. But, dear silver lady, how else will we know when he's asleep? We'll put a ladder to his bedroom window and have a look. That'll be a good idea. Even better than a catchphrase. A catchphrase in which the audience has to participate. I remember shouting, son, myself, when Bygraves came to Blackpool about that time. There was a good deal of the goons' reversible logic at work in that material, and it was a form they were now on the way to perfecting. Michael Benteen had left the team in November 1952, but with Milligan now enjoying a greater confidence in himself as a performer, the three-man team was well able to carry on. By the fourth series, late in 1953, the Goon Show was sure enough of its storyline to carry a dramatic subtitle. The first, one of the long-lost Goon Shows, was called The Dreaded Piano Clubber. Nobody about in the shop. Is there anybody in? Yes, me. Who are you? Mr. Cran, I came in with you. Splendid! <laughs> Mr. Cran, there's only you and me. Good, good, good. In any case, whoever works in this dreadful, filthy piano shop must be right off his head. Yes. I, I wonder who he is. Hold on, do I do know who he is? Hello, good evening. Good evening. I would not. Uh, you want to buy a piano? I'm looking for a criminal. Oh, that's one mic I haven't got. <laughs> I wouldn't buy a piano with this hovel. What? I've kept a hovel? My shop a hovel? Oh. oh, no, 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 my man. This is a, a very elegant shop. This is famous, famous men come here, my man. Famous men. 
So, here, do you know who comes here? Nope. Monsieur Paul de Groin. <laughs> is, is, is he famous? No, but he comes here. <laughs> From the dreaded piano clubber, starting as they meant to go on, since pianos, clubs, and dreaded items featured largely in Spike Milligan's overheated imagination throughout the rest of the 50s. But the goons were an acquired taste, and listeners would only acquire it gradually. The real devotees, young people of, say, the Prince of Wales's age, or a bit older, were too young as yet to catch on. Joining Just Fancy in the no-audience movement in the early 50s were the Canadian pairing of Bernard Braden and Barbara Kelly. They'd started out uncertainly in British radio, making at first the big mistake of reproducing the formulae of Itmar in Leave Your Name and Number. You realise, of course, that you're driving me into the arms of some rich, gorgeous dope of a girl... Mrs. Gribble. Good morning, Griff. Good morning, Dax. If we knew you were coming, we'd have cleaned the place up a bit. Oh, that's all right, dear. I can clean round the dirt. Good. <laughs> oh, my feet are killing me. It's the new shoes. Are too small for you? No, my feet are too big for them. Oh, sure. Just like me old man. Your husband complains about his feet? Everybody complains about his feet, dear. <laughs> first thing he does when he comes home from the works is to take off his boots and put on the television. I don't know which bothers me most. I take it then you have some fault to find with the television programs, Mrs. G. Oh, it ain't the program so much. It's our machine. Something wrong with it. Something wrong? Yeah, so half the time the bloke that comes on grinning and said, this here's the BBC television service is on Upside Down. <laughs> Upside down? Yeah, it's because my old man's too stingy to take it to be mended. Instead, he's built a trapeze in the sitting room and hangs there by his knees. <laughs> well, let's get on with me work. Yes, it seems a shame to get that nice new mop all dirty scrubbing our horrid old floor. Hmm, does, doesn't it? Well, I'll leave it until next week, then, shall I? Huh? huh? Cheery bar! Cheery bar! Miriam Carlin making the very best of a recycled Mrs. Mop. They had a Colonel Chutney character, too. But with Breakfast with Braden and later Bedtime with Braden, they settled down into an intimate, no-audience format, playing off the suavity of announcer Ronald Fletcher, as several later shows would do, and being cackled at, just to remind listeners that laughter was not actually forbidden, by the band. You may have heard of our school, one of the finest centres of education in North. Old St. Ingots and the Foundry. We of the staff were proud of everything in it, except, well, we all knew that the most unpopular person in the school was the Latin master, Mr. Tuckhamper. How could he fail to see the intrigue that was rampant between myself and his bitterly pretty young wife, Gloria? No, you're back, my dear. Talk, talk, talk. Just as soon as I get in the door. Don't you ever shut up. Well, I, I... suppose you want to know where I've been, don't you? Well, I stopped into Gab at the lab with young Stinks. The handsome science master whom he has got all the girls for miles around in a whirl about him. Yes, well... Well, I... what? I don't know why you have to get so head up about every little thing I do. Oh, my head is splitting. I must have a migraine again. Yes, dear, I'll fetch one for you. Dear me, Gloria's gone. Probably the bus ride back made her feel ill. Oh, yes, sick transit Gloria and the doorbell will ring. <laughs> It is I, sir, your pupil, young Pabulum. Come in, Pabulum, come in. Time for our lesson. Uh, our last lesson, I'm afraid, Mr. Tuckhamper, sir. The headmaster's just declared you out of bounds. And so this is my reward for 15 years of continuous service at St. Ingots. Uh, 16 years, I believe, sir. 
You came here the year after I did. So I did. <laughs> Nobody cackled more loudly in that band than Charlie Katz, and years later he earned his own show with his novelty sextet, where you could hear him cackling at himself. Bernard Braden credited the producer Pat Dixon with mobilising Bedtime with Braden. And along with Dennis Mayne Wilson, Dixon had most to do with the promotion of the goons from idea to reality. Producers are sometimes lucky. Shows fall into their laps, almost ready-made. Others have to carve a satisfying programme shape out of the living manure. Dixon, anyway, seems to have had the knack of attracting programmes that would, in the end, achieve a high-quality finish. One that gave him less trouble than most, I would imagine, since it was largely devised by Peter Ustinov with the help of Muir and Norden, and featured Ustinov and Peter Jones as most of the cast of characters, was In All Directions. This was a show where you were more thankful than usual for the absence of an audience. Those half-mumbled subtleties, those little tones of voice, would have been lost on a stage. Good morning. I saw your board outside saying the house is for sale. Are you the owner? Yeah. No, no, you see, we're the agents. Uh, we believe in the personal contact. We're always on the premises. Uh, Dudley. Hello, yes. Uh, man, are you interested in the, uh, in the house? No. Yes. Good morning, Mr. Good morning. What's the name? Grosvenor. Dudley Grosvenor. Oh, my brother. Uh, yes, I'm rather interested in the house. It's a very old house, isn't it? What, what period, would you say? Well, uh, oh. what periods are there? And overlapping, overlapping dialogue, Ustinov and Jones in all directions, as Murray and Dudley, with the bewildered client played, as you may have guessed, by Frank Muir himself. Muir and Norden, having got through the pain barrier that afflicts writers after several series of the same show, were now approaching the maturity of Take It From Here. With Jimmy Edwards, Dick Bentley, and at this stage, Joy Nichols, they had hit upon the glums. Ron, you can't take your dad on our honeymoon. Well, you know him and his remarks. Oh, Ron. Oh, now, don't cry, beloved. Look, we needn't all stay at the same hotel. We'll book a double room at one hotel and a single room at another. Well, that might be possible. Of course, Ed. Then Dad and I could meet you on the beach after breakfast. Now, don't cry, beloved. You know it only makes me cry. Hello, hello. 
What's this, a meeting of the Johnny Ray fan club? <laughs> the Glums on their way in 1954. Peter Sellers in that year was still doing character voices for Ray's a laugh, but his goon range in the meantime had almost completely crystallised. The goons, in fact, were soon well enough established to offer hospitality to the running characters of a previous comedy era, the one from which they themselves had recently escaped. Make a blood mark, sir. The colonel is coming, Tottenham 3, Arsenal 2, snow on high ground. Thank you, thank you. The colonel? All right, sir. Oh, chain the brandy to the wall. I, I know his sort. A glass of port. I don't mind if I do. By the great leather putties of Jemadar Goldstein. Chinstrap, it's you, sir. Yes, sir. Colonel Chinstrap is always me. What a fortunate coincidence for you both. <laughs> well, if you insist, Dennis, just to show to pass. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, enough? Uh, just a spot more. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yes. Sure. <laughs> Have another? Uh, just a small one, please. Yes. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> this is very good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no. I think it's about time you had one. <laughs> just a minute, just a minute, my boy. Quiet, art thou? Blasted goldfish. <laughs> Jack trains Colonel Chinstrap, unexpectedly bobbing up above the whiskey line again in the fully developed goon show. But in the still formative year of 54, with the Starlings, as we said, they nearly parted company with the BBC. Like Tony Hancock, whose swift rise we'll be following next time, Spike Milligan was not a man to draw a neat distinction between his comic self and his real-life concerns. So there was a lot of anger in his work, and the same anti-authoritarian feelings that produced characters like the military coward Bloodnock could be turned on other authorities too. The BBC was one, and no doubt would have been, even if Milligan hadn't already felt that the corporation was working him too hard and unsympathetically. At all events, a scene in which a very Richard Dimbleby-like commentator described a ceremonial appearance by the Duchess Boyle de Spudswell, a lady clearly not unrelated to the occupants of Buckingham Palace, did not please the powers that were. They'd hardly cleared up after the coronation yet, but they all got over it, and comedy did live to fight another day. We'll see you then. And now she reaches the great gold and bronze microphone to make her declaration. But first, the master of the rolls and leather goods pledges his allegiance, also the quanta d'honorum. So let us listen to it. He appears to be having trouble with the great microphone of state. The same great microphone used ever since 1672, hand-beaten and foot-slapped gold and silver surmounted by two Burmese cherubs and fashioned by the great sculptor Ben Venuto Selenae and his brother Fred. <coughs> 
the great square, she steps up to the great microphone. That was the Starlings. That was. And I'm asked to say that any resemblance to a goon show is due to the laxity of the producer, Peter Eaton. Good night. You are listening to the Comedy Corner here on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. And that was the final part of the history of radio comedy. But now, as promised, here is an episode of the Frankie Howard Show. We present Frankie Howard. June Whitfield and Ray Fell. And here's Frankie. Thank you. Now, thank you very much. <coughs> now, ladies and gentlemen, um, no, no, don't. Listen, no, listen, look at all there. No, no. Listen, there's all beads that dangling here. Get your beads up, love. That's it. I, I don't know if it, you can notice, but tonight I feel limp. I feel... I, do. Now, I just, I feel... I don't know, I can't sing. I know why. I've had a shocking week. Oh, terrible. You see, the man who runs this place, what's his name? The man with the big... The man who runs the BBC thing. The man with the big... You know, got this enormous... Uh, what is he got two? What's his... Uh, what's his name? Sing, you know, thing. Yeah, well, you see, he invited me round to dinner. It was about, oh, just over two weeks ago. Dinner at his place at Epsom, a lovely house, you know. Gorgeous place at Epsom. And uh, marvellous time. Gave me the all, gave me the lot, full uh, treatment. You know, silver service, best china and all, yes. And the pork pie wasn't bad either. <laughs> and after the nosh, after the nosh, the ladies retired. And they took their uh, brandy and cigars with them. And this uh, man, what's his name, thing, you see, asked me to go into the library. So I thought, what do you want? So he said, I've got a job for you. I wanted the guards, you know, look after someone, you see. He said, my uh, offspring, my son, is a bit of a, you know, a tearaway, you said, and I'm going away for a couple weeks' holiday, so I want you to look after him. I want you to be a sort of au pair sort of thing. I said, well, I've got the O. I said, it's... <laughs> I haven't got a pair, though. I said, I don't know what... <laughs> so he said, we look, don't want any facetiousness. So anyway, but I, before I could say money, he was gone. I was left there, stuck there. Anyway, about half an hour later, this, this, this son of the house came back. He was a Ch- Ch- Che Guevara of Epsom. He was standing in front of me, covered from head to foot in hair. 
head to foot, he was all hairy. I didn't know he had any clothes on till he moved. Anyway, the thing was, he was decadent. I said, now look, he started, I said, look, comb your face before you talk to me. Because <laughs> I could be very sarcastic in a crisis. So I thought to myself, I'll start with a bit of discipline. Put me foot down. Now I said, and where do you think you're going tonight? And you know what he, you know what he said? I'm going to an orgy. And also I thought, now I must have discipline. Discipline. I had to be shown the way back to the paths of righteousness. So I looked at him straight in the hair. And I said, look, I absolutely insist, I'm adamant that you are back here in the house from the orgy by 11 o'clock. See? Because it's the only language they understand, you know, some of these. Yes. It was then I found out I discovered his interest in the medical profession. Hit me over the head with a first aid box. <laughs> when I came to, two days later, he confessed to me he wanted to be a doctor. Yes, what he said, he wanted to be a doctor. But he, he, didn't, he didn't fancy this old GP, you know, say, 99, drop your trousers routine, all that. <laughs> or he didn't want to do operations. So I said to him, now, listen to Francis' expert advice. And before you can say double hernia, you will be taking... Shut your mouth. You will be taking... Bound, dear, sat there cackling. <laughs> Go on, can have a night out. Hey, <laughs> yes. And do that's right. And do yourself have a night out. Yes. No. Where was I? You put me off. No. And I said, now look, before you can say double hernia, you'll be taking your hypocritical oath. Now I said, my advice to you was very simple. I said, choose a portion of the human anatomy, and specialise in it. Now wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I said, be careful with the bits you choose, because thereby hangs your future. <laughs> wait. We got it right, ladies. Look at the mush there. Now, I said, don't hurry. I said, choose a part of the body, then go home, I said, and sleep on it. That's what he did. He did. He went numb. <laughs> don't laugh, missus. It'd be very painful having a numb tum. Anyway. Mind you, I'll tell you something. I've got a rare medical condition myself, you know. I have. I'm allergic to my secretary. Miss... Oh, you know her. Oh, Miss Lyme. Poor old soul. Ah, what a huge pile of mail, Miss Lyme. Miss C. Lyme. That one's for you, Miss oh. C. Lyme. So this one's for you, Miss C. Lyme. Miss C. Lyme, they're all for you. Well, I asked them to send my letters here, Mr. Howard. Did you? Because I left home when they arrive, you see. Oh. Because I leave home so early. So I get them earlier if I get them here. Because I don't get them at home until I get home. But I get them here before I get home. Usually. <laughs> Now, let's get on to my letters, Miss Lyme. Ah, now this letter's for me, the occupier. No, no, that's for me as well. It's my rent rebate. Oh, charming. Miss Lyme, Miss Lyme, Miss, Miss Gloria Morningdew, the devil's she. Oh, I'm Miss Gloria Morningdew, Mr. What? Howard. Yes, I sent a letter to the magazine Rivelli. They won't publish it. Well, they have. Have they? Yes, here's the copy in which it appeared. Oh, do read it, Mr. Howard. Uh, all right. Uh, what is it now? Deaf Sid. Deaf Sid. Oh, that should have been Dear Sir. I see. Mm. <laughs> I have a collection of more than 8,000 cigarette cops. Carp? Cigarette cards? Cigarette cards. Cards. Yes. I'm sorry. I thought it was the moment we smoked fish. I see. <laughs> Deaf Sid. I have a collection of more than 8,000 cigarette cards from all four corners of the glove. <laughs> If your readers have any unusual examples, 
I would be grateful if they could bend them to me. <laughs> Yours faithfully, Gloria Morningdew, Miss. But I'm sorry to say it wasn't one of my better typing days. I'm sorry to say it was one of your better typing days. Oh, dear. I used the false names because I was afraid you might dismiss me if you found out. How could I? Now, how could I? I mean, unless a secretary like you, you were in a field of your own, aren't you? <laughs> Silly cow. <laughs> Mr. Howard! Let them laugh, let them laugh, Miss Lyme. It's not often they do, we must make the most of it. Now, on with the letters. That's for you. Miss Roma... This from... What's this? Miss Ramona Nightingale? Oh, yes, that's my letter to the Daily Mirror. I wrote for advice. Oh, I must read this. This is the reply, is it? Dear Miss Nightingale, there is nothing unusual in having a boss who complains about your untidy drawers. <laughs> your complaints are unfounded and we advise you to drop them. That's nice, isn't it? Miss Lyme, I have never complained about your mode of dress, and you know it. Oh, but I'm rather glad of that, because I was thinking of wearing a miniskirt. Oh, I wouldn't. It wouldn't go with your wellies. <laughs> or your crash helmet. Oh, no. And I mean, Miss Lyme, fancy using the word drawers like that. You must have known what people would think. Well, I am sorry, Mr. Howard. I... Oh, look, there's a letter for you at last. Uh, yes, about time. I'll take that. Oh, it's a reply to my letter from Marjorie Proops. Here we are. Dear Shaky of the Elephant and Castle. <laughs> My advice to you is quite simple. If you're worried about your secretary's bloomers, pull the blinds down and wear dark glasses. What a I've had a lot, a lot of opportunities to travel. That's the great thing about theatre. A lot of opportunities to travel. Because your comics always on the move, you know. Always on the move. Well, I am. Well, I have to. It's on my audiences, I have to be. I, I've been everywhere. Have you been? Uh, oh, I've been to where? Oh, Russia. I've been to Russia. And uh, devoted followers of my life history would not be surprised to learn that everything did not run smoothly in Russia. Ladies and gentlemen, I had calamity in the Caucasus. <laughs> Mrs. Mrs. I had unpleasantness in the Urals. How do you like your cell, Mr. Howard? Well, it's better than my hotel room, I must say. Now we will try again, English spy. What are you doing in Russia? I told you I'm on a package tour. Where have you delivered the package? There isn't any package. Where have you been on this package tour without the package? I... I have been everywhere. I've been seeing Russia gradually, step by step, you see. Step by step by step. <laughs> they can see. Why can't you? I've been to Omsk, Tomsk and Minsk. Why did you go to Minsk? To buy Minsk pie. <laughs> it's, it's witty, isn't it? Please yourselves. Where did you get all these Russian yokes? Oh, I'm sorry. You see, I can't seem to kick the habit. As the mule said to the monk. The mule said... <laughs> I've slipped another yoke in. That laid an egg, didn't it? Now he's making cracks. Now we turn to Moscow, yes. English spy. Your yes. first night at dinner. What? What did you say to the writer? To the waiter? I'll tell you what I said to the waiter. There's an earwig in my soup. That's what I said. 
Because there is the secret password and you thought he was a British spy, yes? No, 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 because there was an e-wig in my suit, that's why. And what did the waiter say to you? He said, don't shout, or they'll all want one. <laughs> Duh, that is a good yoke. I see you like the old ones. Silence! Now, what? later that night, what did you say to the reception clerk? I said, there are two green spiders crawling in my bath. There is nothing unusual in that. You didn't see where they were crawling. <laughs> so, two green spiders crawling in my bath. Yes. Ah, uh, code. Yeah, pardon? Code. Oh, I know. Bitter. It's bitter tonight. Nick, is it code? Yes, there's a draft in here. Why? We know you were speaking in code. We oh. have translated this using the third digital system. It For... means there are two secret rocket establishments nine miles north of Smolensk. Rubbish! Entry for June 6th. Yes. Read it, please. 0015 Hilda. So, you are Agent 0015, codename Hilda. <laughs> I was meeting Hilda Plumstone behind the fish market, 0015, quarter past midnight. What for? For a bit. <laughs> a bit of what? A bit of information? A bit of the other. The other what? Ah, the other Germany. Oh, no. The other nothing. I mean, oh, sex. And what was in the sex? <laughs> Sweet Fanny Adams. I thought you said her name was Hilda. Look, I'm an innocent tourist. Do I look like a spy going on a package tour with no package and meeting Sweet Fanny Adams and a, to get sacks of nothing from the other nothing? You are a spy and I know it. You don't. Now there is a visitor for you from the British Embassy. Come in, Mrs. Crichton Evans. Oh, thank you. Jolly good. Hello, Mr. Howard. Keeping our pecker up, are we? Jolly good. You may have five minutes together. Oh, don't be so cruel. Make it two. <laughs> Shut up, English spy. I will be back later tonight. Oh. Goodbye. All right. Hey, Musky, what about one for the road? Certainly. <laughs> oh, that was a nice whip. That was a nice whip round. Thank you. Oh, six and seven-eighths. Yes, yes. <laughs> what have you found out? There are two secret rocket establishments. Nine miles north of Smolensk. Yes. There's a nice pie at Minsk. <laughs> and there was an earwig in the soup. What was it doing? The breaststroke. <laughs> Don't you start! Don't you start! <laughs> Of course, my show business career, you know, has brought me into contact with some very, you know, sort of colourful people, or, you know, sort of different types of people. Because I once shared a, a dressing room, you know, with a, a bearded lady. That was a ticklish situation. <laughs> <laughs> then there was a lady, we had a lady, a lady magician, a lady magician who, uh, who couldn't resist male singers. She'd do anything for a tenor. Then we had... Uh... <laughs> Oh, yeah, one night we went out for a drive, this lady magician. I, I tried a bit of magic on her myself. I turned into a lay-by. I turned into... They're coming thick and fast now. How dare you? And this illusionist, uh, we had an illusionist, uh, illusionist, and he, and he had a wonderful illusion. He thought he was good. And then there was a, a hypnotist. We had a hypnotist, ladies and gentlemen. Here, this girl and I, one day this hypnotist practised on us in the dressing room, you see. And then he left us, me and this girl, all alone, hypnotised. Hypnotised, it was a very embarrassing situation, I tell you. 
This is the worst of both worlds, isn't it? If you stop it and start, it's neither one thing nor t'other. No, I'm going to go and get him to come and unhypnotise. I wish you would, girl. I'm, I'm exhausted. Come in. Hello. Oh, God. <laughs> it's Sadie Simpkins, the sex mad soprano. Isn't the hypnotist clever? Do you know he's made me act sexily every time I hear the word Brussels sprouts? Brussels sprouts? <laughs> No, it doesn't work with her. Kiss me. What stops her? Um, pencil, cornflakes, eggs, book, sausage, uh, crumpet. Oh, don't you start, girl. Don't you start. There are a lot of officials around these days, don't you think so? I mean, there's the eurocrat, the bureaucrat, the technocrat. I think there's all a load of crap myself. 
I'm sorry, I do. It's all rules. All rules! I was down the London Underground. There was a notice saying, dogs must be carried. I haven't got a dog. <laughs> I, had to buy, I had to go and buy a cocker spaniel just to go to cops office. <laughs> I was on the platform, man said, a man said, mind the doors. I said, mind them yourself. I said, it's your job. I'm not doing this job. I'm quick with it, you know, I'm quick. Let's change the subject to literally, to literally. I've joined the lo local literary society, the Pen Club, you know. Yes, Pen Club. They sent me a subscription form yesterday. Five pounds, 20 pence. Pay half now, half in six months' time. So I've done that. Pay 20 pence a day, and I'll pay the five pounds in six months. <laughs> and to my first meeting yesterday, I, oh, I must say, I went over well. Created a big sort of you know, impression. Ah, I'm the new member, Francis Howard, scribbler, raconteur, and wit. I am Neath Ap Llewellyn. Suppose you could say I'm the celebrity of the pen club. I see, you're his nibs. Oh! <laughs> Francis is sharp today. Most amusing. Have you entered a poem for this month's poetry competition, Mr. Howard? Yes, I've scribbled a little ode. Francis has a little ode for you. Do recite it to us, Mr. Howard. Yes. This is a little poem that I wrote, looking at the sunset over the bay. The little white fishermen's cottages were tinged with pink. And I was touched to the quick with the sense of the beauty of nature. My quick had never been so touched. And so, please, must ask you to shut your gobs. And so, so I pen these words. I pen these words. Listen to these beautiful words. A fruit and nut bottler from Ghoul <laughs> fell down in a very large pool. Now he's got a stained suit, seven pounds of squash fruit, and waterlogged nuts, the great fool. <laughs> Mr. Howard, that Sir. was doggerel. Pathetic, mindless, dull, dismal doggerel. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you liked it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Listen to my poem yes. and see what a real poem should be like. Neath poems are always awfully good. <laughs> I have swum in the cold, cruel river. I am pale and naked. I shake and shiver. I put my clothes on with a trembling hand. I am lost in this strange and distant land. Who am I? Am I really a professor? No, you're just an old Welsh dresser. <laughs> Mr. Hart. What? I don't think you're a genuine poet. I think you're a sued. Not a genuine poet? A sued? How rude. Now admit it, Mr. Hart, you're a phony. Me a phony? What baloney? There's no need to say everything in rhyme. I can't help it. I do it all the time. You're an idiot. You can never write a decent word. Don't call me an idiot, niece, or I'll kick you in the very teeth. Oh, how clever. It sends me into joyous trances to contemplate the wit of Francis. You call that wit? What a farce. Shut up, or I'll kick you in the brief. Wait a minute! I'll kick you in the briefcase. No, don't clap, she want money. <laughs> I told her this is an audition, yes. I know what I'd do to you if you were a nut. And the next line has been cut. <laughs> Mr. Howard, yes. if I may make so bold, for all this cut and thrust, you're getting old. What? I'm getting old? I'm flabbergasted to hear that from you, because you are past it. What? You suggest that I am past it? My flabber has never been so gasted. You annoyed him there, and that's a fact. Of course she has. She's pinched my act. 
Ladies and gentlemen, titty ye not at this load of silly old rot, for it is truly a bitter mess, and we must go home titterless. No hist, here comes the fairy queen. Much too long at the ball you've been. Hurry on home before midnight strikes. Where the hell are we now? Wait a minute, what the hell's going on? Oh, let's get back to let's do one of the earlier sketches. Boris! Hello, English spy. We have our ways of making the call. Well, it makes a change. Another whip round. Now, here is your meal. Potatoes and cabbage. Oh, Esmeralda! <laughs> oh, that's it then for the night. There it is. Thank you very much. You've been a marvellous... Uh, thank you. You've been a marvellous audience. I, uh, that's all for my memoirs this week. Next week, I shall be telling you about some more of the fantastic and... Marvellous achievements that fill Francis's scrapbook. I shall tell you about Francis the sportsman. How I shut him out. How? How I tried to swim the English Channel, but three miles before reaching the French coast, I got cramp and had to swim back. I shall tell you about Francis the inventor. How I crossed an Alsatian with some emotion and got a dog that paints lampposts. I shall not forget to tell you about Francis the artist, how I wanted to paint Raquel Welsh in the nude, but she wouldn't let me take my clothes off. So goodbye, God bless, the best of luck, thank you. You've been listening to Frankie Howard's illustrious memoirs, starring, of course, the illustrious Frankie Howard, with June Whitfield, Ray Fell and Alwyn Griffiths, and the Bill McGuffey Quartet. The memoirs were written by David McKellar and David Nobbs and produced by David Hatch. You have been listening to The Comedy Corner here on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. That's all for this week, folks. So until I speak to you again next week, this is Grimstein saying keep smiling. We've got some off-price crack ties, some miles and miles of carpet tiles, TVs, deep freeze, and David Bowie OPs, pool games, gold chains, wuss names, and head push, and Trevor Francis track suits from a mush and shepherd's bush. Push, 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 push. No income tax, no VAT, no money back, no guarantee. Black or white, rich or poor, we'll cut prices at a straw. This program is made with assistance from New Zealand On Air for radio broadcast and through the accessmedia.nz website. Thank you, New Zealand On Air.